The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Straight cash, homie. Would you please break the damn story? He took it out. Oh, for you. Friday, PFT PM. Haven't done this in a while where I answer all of your questions. I'm going to answer as many as I can within an hour. Sorry, I'm not going to go on and on and on. We've done it as long as an hour and a half before. Now, one hour, starting now. Nothing to talk about before then, other than to say there's nothing to talk about before then. So let's go. PFT PM Posse, right out of the gates. This is a question that comes through the PFTPM posse, originating with Valley Man 12. Will Tua's injury scare Trevor Lawrence into holding out for the year? Should it? Well, here's the thing. I long for the day where a player makes a business decision, a player who knows the hay is in the barn, a player who is confident that he'll be one of the top players taken in the draft the following year. I long for the day when that player says, hey, college football, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. I'm out. Bye-bye. We've seen it start to move in that direction with players making business decisions about not playing in meaningless bowl games. We've seen it when players get injuries during the season and they say, that's it, I'm done. The Nick Bosa approach from 2018. Yeah, Trevor Lawrence should. I said last year after Trevor Lawrence was the king of college football, freshman year Clemson, undefeated, wins the national championship, quit playing. What Trevor Lawrence should do is go play for the XFL. He could play for the XFL for two years negotiate a deal that would pay him a crap load of money, a lot more than he's going to get at Clemson, and then enter the draft right after that. Stop it with this free football stuff. And these guys are brainwashed. They are. They think all of this is an honor. They think it's a privilege to play football and not get paid. They think it's a privilege to be drafted by a team instead of picking who your team is going to be. And part of it is the mindset of an 18, 19, 20-year-old. They think they're going to live forever, and they think they're always going to be able to do the things they do. Five years from now may as well be 500 years from now. So there's a confidence, an arrogance, a delusion of youth and fitness and strength. And even when it happens to someone else, very rarely do they look at that and say, well, it could happen to me. What they say is, poor bastard, that's not happening to me. I've said this before, we have a genetic defect that allows us to pursue greatness as a species. We don't think bad things are going to happen to us. They happen to everyone else, they don't happen to us. Not all humans feel that way. There are some that are capable, and I think it comes with age. You start to understand and map out and factor in the worst case scenarios, and you make decisions accordingly. But young Fit, strong, fast, stupid, oblivious, arrogant, delusional. Nothing's going to happen to me. It happened to him, ain't happening to me. Valley Man 12, another question. If you're Jimmy Haslam, would you have hired Eric Bieniemy, Robert Sala, or someone else as head coach over Kevin Stefanski? Well, look, it's hard to know who to hire without being privy to the interview process. The one thing I love about these questions about what an owner should do or could do or would do, even if you're not sufficiently qualified to be a general manager or a coach because you haven't lived it for years. It's not your profession. You don't dig into the X's and O's, the nuances, the looseness of the hips, all the things that that the people who make this their career know about. It's still very easy to relate to the decisions made by an owner because an owner is essentially a fan with a lot of money, right? Football fan with a few billion. No more or less equipped than any of the rest of us to know what the hell it's all about. So, if I were Jimmy Haslam, you know what I would do? I wouldn't make the decision. I'd hire somebody I trust to make the decision. But I would have hired Josh McDaniels over any of these guys, Bienemy Sala or Kevin Stefanski. We talk about 
teams hiring a coach who's the exact opposite of the coach they just fired. Even though Kevin Stefanski is the inexperienced exact opposite of the coach who was just fired, the exact opposite of Freddie Kitchens, the true exact opposite would be Josh McDaniels. Because McDaniels, unlike Kitchens, has extensive experience. I'd have hired McDaniels. And I'd have told Paul DePodesta, go back to baseball. Or move on to basketball or hockey. You've done your time in football. And look, people think this is unfair, but Sashi Brown got fired. John Dorsey got fired. Coaches got fired. DePodesta's been there four years. He's finally gotten his way. If it doesn't work, he gets fired. It's that simple. PFT, PMOGT, uh, Tom G. Post, given that the Eagles haven't announced any assistant coach hirings, do you think they're waiting for staff from a playoff team to become available, like a James Urban? Who else could be the leading candidate? See, I really haven't followed this closely, frankly. The staff hirings just kind of work themselves out. And there are some people in the media who want to let us know all the com- comings and goings of every quarterback coach and assistant receiver coach and this guy and that guy. And that's fine. That information's out there and we write about it. And we keep up with it. But the, the, those dominoes all sort themselves out. If you've got some members of coaching staffs that are due to become free agents or you think they're possibly not going to be required to finish their contracts, then you wait for them. That's a possibility. But here's the other side of it. The rules make it very easy. Even if you think it's a promotion, even if it's that assistant receivers coach and you want to make him offensive coordinator, you know you can't do it if the guy's still under contract and his current team says no. So I don't know what the Eagles are doing. I don't know that they're waiting for anybody, but the key to remember, if you are waiting for someone, you better be damn sure that someone's going to be able to get free. If their contract isn't expiring, all their current team has to say is no. PFT, PM Posse, does the hiring of Dean Blandino by the XFL mean they care more and are willing to invest more money into officiating than the NFL? If so, what does this tell us about the NFL or further reinforce? Well, here's the thing. Do we really think the XFL is requiring Dean Blandino to give up his Fox gig? This is a side hustle. This isn't full-time employment. If Blandino would ever go back to the NFL, or if he would have stayed at the NFL, he wouldn't be moonlighting at Fox. So, this makes sense. Blandino works for Fox. Fox is a broadcast partner for the XFL. Who knows how much money they're paying Blandino, but Blandino's got the time. This is extra money Blandino can make that if he were working for the NFL, he'd be working. So instead of screwing around with competition committee meetings and coaches subcommittee meetings and meeting with the union and thinking about this, talking about this, evaluating officials doing all the things that a VP of officiating does when it's not football season, instead of doing nothing, he's going to be doing something, and he's going to be getting paid for it on top of what he's getting from Fox. I think it's good that Fox is, or I'm sorry, the XFL has hired Blandino, but I don't think it says anything about the NFL. Now, superficially, the fact that it's even a question, yeah, okay, the XFL has a better... VP of officiating than the NFL does. Plain and simple. All due respect to Al Riveron, Blandino's better. And I think what the NFL should do this offseason is bring Blandino back, whatever it takes. Two million a year, five million a year, bring him back. It's the most important job during football season of any, including the commissioner who's making, who knows how much he's making because the NFL eventually was shamed into abandoning its tax-exempt status because people made a specious unfair argument that this meant NFL teams didn't pay taxes, which was baloney, and now there's no transparency as to what the commissioner and other key executives at the NFL earn. Thanks, everybody who made that bullshit argument. Thank you. PFTP and Posse OG Thomas Berry, what do you think of the Chicago Bears' offensive coaching hires with DiFilippo and Bill Lazor? Upgrade, downgrade, better for Trubisky's development. Look, it doesn't matter. Matt Nagy runs the show there. DiFilippo's star has plunged over the past two years. Goes from quarterback's coach in Philly two years ago. The Vikings make him the offensive coordinator. Mike Zimmer fires him during the season. He crash lands in Jacksonville. The Jaguars fire him after one season. And now he's the quarterback's coach of a team whose head coach is the offensive coordinator and quarterback's coach. So it's irrelevant. These are the jobs that people with options will not take because you know that Matt Nagy is running the show. Now, Here's the other side of it. If the team does well, 
then you have an opportunity to get some advancement. You get noticed. You play into January. I just don't know that the Bears are going to fix this thing in one offseason. Maybe they will. They gave us reason for a while to think during the 2019 season that they were on the right track, and then it kind of fizzled out down the stretch. So I don't know. It's a job. It's available. And these guys chose that instead of the alternative. PFTPM Posse, being a fan of an NFL team, hell, any, every sports team for that matter, is legit 99.9% pure agony and disappointment with that said. Why in the hell do we as fans, which includes every member of the PFTPM Posse, willingly put ourselves through it year after year? I don't know that it's 99.9% agony and disappointment. Now, 99.9% of the seasons end that way, but the chase is enjoyable. The season is enjoyable. The hope that maybe this year is the year. That's why you follow the team. You enjoy the journey, and you hope it culminates in a playoff appearance, and you hope that the team gets hot at the right time and gives you those very intense, very fleeting, but very intense moments as you go through a week in advance of a playoff game. And you anticipate that game. And you devour every bit of information about that game. And you get excited and you're proud when these so-called experts pick your team to win. And you get upset and pissed off when the so-called experts pick your team to lose. Like all the 49ers fans are doing because I picked the Packers to win. Because I hate the 49ers and I love the Packers. That's exactly why I envision a Green Bay victory on Sunday. Because I hate the 49ers and I love the Packers. They have figured me out. PFTPM Posse OG NFL leads. He has listened to PFTPM since day one through good and bad times. Loves hearing my views on family, and it's a nice cathartic distraction from real life. He just lost his dad and wants to hear some of your best memories of your dad and how you got through his death. Why are you doing this to me? Why? I'm not reading these in advance. I would have skimmed by this one. I talked a week and a half ago about my experience growing up and being a Vikings fan and living through the lows, the memories of the lows, the excitement capped by a Super Bowl loss, the excitement capped by the 1975 division round of the playoff when Drew Pearson pushed off. 76, back to the Super Bowl. Ball flat. And then I was kind of like Dan Marino. After his second year in the NFL, gets to the Super Bowl, oh, I'll be back plenty. Oh, Vikings lost four in a row. Well, they'll eventually win one. They'll be back plenty. Haven't been back since. But every time the Vikings start to move back toward it, it brings back that flood of memories from when I was a kid, the nostalgia, the agony. It all comes back. I was explaining that to my wife a week and a half ago after the Vikings beat the Saints. And she said, oh, aren't you happy? It's like, you don't understand how this works. And every year it gets worse. Every year there's another year of distance. It feels like when that snowball comes rolling down the mountain, it's got more force. And it just brings back so much of growing up, being at home with your family, watching your favorite team play, getting excited, getting upset, having your dad say to you, why are you getting upset? It's no big deal. They'll be back next year. They're not folding the team. My dad died July of 1998. My son was a year and a half, almost two years old. And it was weird. I remember my dad was having health issues. He was 76, going to be 77 in September. And right around Super Bowl 31, Patriots-Packers, he, my mom had died a year and a half earlier and he'd been having some symptoms that suggested he would have heart issues and of course he wouldn't do anything about it he'd eat and he'd get you know he felt it was just heartburn and eventually he went to the hospital and needed a sex supple bypass and that all happened right around that Super Bowl 31 that was early 97 fast forward you know it was a long recovery and You know, when you get to that age, especially when you had a hard life of nicotine and alcohol and a lot of people in that demographic, in that age group during that time frame had a lot of nicotine and alcohol. And I remember 
driving home from work. It was the night of the All-Star game in July of 1998. And my dad was staying with my sister. And I remember calling her up and talking to her about dad. How's dad doing? And she was telling me that, you know, he's always doing great. He's, you know, everything's great. And, and I hung up the phone and, and, you know, car phone back in the old day, the old big bag thing, whatever it was 21 years ago. But I remember thinking I can stop worrying about him for a little bit. It was just a good feeling, you know, because you constantly worry and you constantly worry and you know that at some point that call's going to come and you know at some point it's going to be over. And I was just worried and worried and worried. And I had that moment. I had that moment that I can stop worrying. And five minutes later, I got home and my sister called and he had had a heart attack. And actually, yeah, he had, it was either V-fib or AFib. It was the widow maker. I think it's V-fib, ventricular fibrillation. He was out and a week later he died. So I had that five minutes, that five minutes of peace, that five minutes of, you know, yeah, it's 77, but my son's a year and a half old. He's going to be around for a while and come to the house. He can spend some time. We can watch some games, and, and that was it. So I guess the, the bottom line is appreciate every moment if you have older parents. You never know what moment is going to be the last moment. But make the memories so you have them. And embrace the bitterness. Embrace the sadness. Embrace the emotion. It's part of life. You don't realize it until you go through it. But you haven't really lived until you've grieved. So you own it. You dig into it. You let it tear you apart. And then it helps you put sports in perspective. Trust me on that. That loss in the playoffs all of a sudden doesn't hurt as much. But, again, when your team is back in the vicinity of that same thing that evokes all those memories, that's when it all comes back. And it's a jumbled stew of happiness and sadness and life. I mean, that really is the bottom line to it. We grieve as we live. We don't live unless we're grieving. You haven't lived a complete life unless you've gone through that. Another one from NFL Leads. On a lighter note, has Derrick Henry been overlooked in the MVP race? He led the NFL in rushing. Titans MVP dominated the playoffs and shoulders more of his team's workload than any other player outside of maybe Lamar Jackson. Here's the thing. The MVP is a regular season award. And Derrick Henry had 1,500 rushing yards. 1,500 rushing yards is not going to win you the MVP over a quarterback who had 1,200 rushing yards and 36 touchdown passes. It's just not. A running back is going to win the MVP if he is at or near the single-season rushing record, like Adrian Peterson in 2012. Or if, in the regular season... Now, if if Derrick Henry had had three straight 180-plus-yard games in the regular season and become the first person in 100 years of NFL football to do it, I don't know. Derrick Henry's had a strange career. They had DeMarco Murray when they drafted Derrick Henry. He had like 100 carries as a rookie. He had 300-plus this year. They've just never used him all that much, and they use him more and more. And this year, the roof blew off, and here he is at 1,500 rushing yards. And he's due to be a free agent. Undoubtedly, he'll be franchise-tagged. Although, here's the thing. And I've said this recently. Titans, Buccaneers, and Cowboys, three teams that may be rooting for no new CBA before the start of the new league year. Because if there's no new CBA before the start of the new league year, they get a, frangis, a, fran, a, fran, a transition tag, a franchise tag, and a tra- maybe that's what we should call it. It's the transition tag year. Franchise tag and a transition tag both can be used. If a new deal is done by March, you only get one or the other, and you only get one. The Titans would love to have the transition tag and the franchise tag. But who do you use the franchise tag on? Do you use it on Ryan Tannehill and merely secure a right to match whatever offer is given to Derrick Henry? Or do you use the franchise tag on Derrick Henry and the right to match that comes from the transition tag with no compensation on Ryan Tannehill? Now, with only one tag, without the availability of the transition tag, See, I'm going to make this look like it wasn't a mistake. Without the transition tag, with the franchise or the transition tag, the old-fashioned way when you have two guys that you have to choose between, you get one of them signed to a long-term deal and tag the other one. James McDonough, would it help officiating to have more former players as officials? For example, a former receiver or cornerback should be able to spot PI in real time far better than an old, athletic, unathletic guy who has never played. Yeah, look, I think that that, that would be a benefit 
and there are former players that do officiate. I think the problem is that by the time you've put in the reps, it's not an easy job. It's a different kind of scrutiny. You know, if you're a receiver, the dog's barking. If you're a receiver, you're in the spotlight only on the number of occasions the ball is thrown your way. How many times is it thrown your way during a game? If you're an official, you're potentially in the spotlight every given play. And they're only going to notice you if you screw up. Rarely are they going to say, man, that is a great call. And if they do, it's just like, oh, good call, move on. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're paid to do. I think it takes a while. Even if you played, even if you're comfortable being in that crucible of 70,000 people with all the scrutiny and the cameras, it takes a while to get yourself to the point where you can make quick, reliable decisions in real time, where you understand all the rules. You know, most players don't know all the rules. They just know the rules that apply to them as coached to them by their position coach, coordinator, and head coach. So yes, I think it makes sense, but you still need to have time to get these guys ready. That's the problem. So I think what they should do, they should get guys into the pipeline younger. Get them in a lot younger and get them working and ready. So maybe by their mid to late 30s, they've graduated to the point where they're ready to go into the NFL. But even then, look, what what do you got? How many years before you're out of shape or relatively not in anywhere near the shape of the players? And I've said this all the time. You're out there with no protection, trying not to be trampled by the gladiators. And they look, they're larger than life when they put the uniform on. And you're out there. And they could put you on your rear end. I've been a proponent of fewer people on the field officiating and using more officials in the booth watching the cameras we see at home. I'm telling you what, if they officiated football from all the cameras that we have access to at home, there would be so many fewer controversies. Because so much of the controversy comes from that disconnect between what the officials see unfolding in front of their eyes as they primarily are trying to avoid being trampled and what the rest of us see while we're at home. And the more individuals in black and white stripes who were officiating the game based upon what we saw at home, the fewer controversies there would be. But the NFL won't tear down the officiating position and rebuild it. As one member of the competition committee likes to say, they still use two sticks and ten yards of chain link to determine whether or not somebody got a first down. Dirtbag1327, any news on the Patriots video investigation? I haven't heard anything. They haven't found any evidence that football operations had any involvement, any connection directly or indirectly with this idiotic Three Stooges routine that played out last month at the Browns-Bengals game a week before the Patriots literally were on to Cincinnati. And I don't think the league should even consider taking away draft picks for the Patriots if that's the case. It's a technical violation with no element of cheating. None whatsoever. It was never going to be used by anyone for a strategic reason, which makes it so different than the other examples that this case is going to be compared to reportedly, and there are multiple reports to this effect. This case would be compared to the Falcons pumping in fake uh, crowd noise, the Browns, former GM Ray Farmer texting to the sidelines, Ben McAdoo, real cream Ben back in the news, big suit Ben back in the news, maybe offensive coordinator in Jacksonville or get a job somewhere. He used a walkie-talkie during a game. All those things were deliberately done, and I mean deliberately like intentionally. It wasn't accidentally done. And even if it was like, oh, I didn't know that was cheating, you still deliberately did it because you were trying to do something to enhance your ability to win. This thing had nothing to do with anyone's ability to win because the people who were doing it were literally the left hand that didn't know what the right hand was doing. Or the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Or Yeah, 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 you know what I mean. Sean Alvishar, shouldn't we all be pulling for the Kansas City offense to go up against the 49ers defense on Super Bowl Sunday? Yes, we want best against best, right? And this is something we talked about last week in San Francisco. Not as it related to the Vikings potentially beating the 49ers, because I I think if the Vikings could have gotten their act together and given the 49ers a game, the Vikings would give the Packers or the Seahawks a game. Obviously, ultimately, it would have been the Packers. But when you get all fired up about the possibility of an upset, when you root for a disruptor to emerge, that's great. That's fun. Oh, man, it was an upset. That's great. I'll take you back 34 years. 
New England Patriots, Miami Dolphins, AFC Championship. Dolphins were great. Patriots were the upstarts. Let's go, Patriots. Let's disrupt things. And the Patriots did. And they kept the Dolphins out of the Super Bowl. And then when the dust settles, you're like, oh, man. Now we don't get to see the Dolphins and the Bears get together again in the Super Bowl. The Patriots are going to get the crap kicked out of them by the Bears, and that's exactly what happened. So be careful what you wish for when you wish for disruption, when you wish for an upset, when you wish for an outcome that is compelling because it's not expected. Yeah, the best outcome this weekend for football is Chiefs 49ers. Although I can take Chiefs Packers, and I've predicted Chiefs Packers, a rematch of Super Bowl I. A rematch of a game that wasn't even called Super Bowl One at the time. It was the AFL-NFL World Championship game at the time. Lamar Hunt, the owner of the Chiefs, the founder of the Chiefs, would coin the Super Bowl at some point after that. I think that would be very fitting as it relates to the NFL's 100th season. Have a rematch of the first Super Bowl, first Super Bowl appearance by the Chiefs in 50 years. 65 toss power trap. And ultimately, I want to be right. I pick the Packers because I want to be right. I pick the Chiefs because I want to be right. But you know what? Any combination of these four teams, I think, could make for a compelling and interesting Super Bowl. Dr. J144, it had never happened, but if the coach with the worst record in the NFL automatically got fired each year, would that help tanking? It still bothers me that Zach Taylor gets rewarded with a number one overall pick for being worse than Steve Wilkes or Freddie Kitchens, both fired one year in. Hire Eric Bannemi, Cincinnati. Hey, look. I don't know, would anyone else have been better than Zach Taylor in Cincinnati? If you flip Matt LaFleur and Zach Taylor, are the Packers still 14-3? and three? And are the Bengals still picking number one overall? See, the owners ultimately decide what they're going to do. And we can't make them do anything. And Mike Brown, the owner of the Bengals, does not like to pay people to not work. So he's not paying that buyout. And how much of this is Zach Taylor's fault? How much is it, is it a fault of... He came into a team that had an empty cupboard. And that's the the dilemma you have when the window opens on a coaching opportunity. If you don't take it, the window may close and it never opens again. If you do take it and it doesn't work out, you may never get another opportunity. You got to pick your spot, but if you're too coy, you may never get a spot. Playoff cap, Brady, Breeze, Bridgewater, Rivers, where do they end up? Great question. I don't know. Let me start with that. Nobody knows. Let me start with Rivers. I think he's done. I think the Chargers are done with him, and I don't think anyone else is going to offer him the kind of money that would make him the clear-cut starting quarterback that he would feel good about relocating his family to a spot where, based upon the compensation offered, there is a good chance they're going to draft somebody, and Phillip Rivers would be the placeholder. He would be the Mike Glennon who would just be there until the rookie is up to speed. I don't think Rivers wants that. Eli Manning's in that same boat. Bridgewater depends on Breeze. The Saints have a hell of a decision to make. Why are we so obsessed with what Tom Brady's going to do and we're not talking about what Drew Breeze is going to do? I mean, I know I'm talking about it, but nationally, this Breeze thing, people will think, ah, he'll be back with the Saints. Will he be? Will he be? There was a report earlier this week from Shefty that Breeze has been approached by at least one non-ESPN network about possibly getting into broadcasting. And the report was that Breeze won't even consider that until he decides whether or not he's going to play. Well, if the Saints decide they want to move on to Taysom Hill and or Teddy Bridgewater... Because I don't think you can keep Taysom Hill and Drew Brees. If you pay Drew Brees, if you deal with the $21.3 million in dead money that's going to be on the cap anyway this year, and yeah, they can kick the can, but regardless, you're going to have a big cap number for Brees. So you're going to have that. How are you going to keep Taysom Hill? You can give him a first-round restricted free agency tender at about $6 million. You can make that work. But what if somebody makes him an offer that you can't match because you've got a huge cap number for Drew Brees? And if I'm a team that needs a quarterback, if I'm a team that is lurking somewhere in the bottom of round one where that first round pick is worth less than it is in the top of round one, and I'm less likely to get one of the top quarterbacks in the draft, don't I put together an offer that the Saints can't or won't match for Taysom Hill? 
Shouldn't the Patriots think about that? When you look at what Taysom Hill can do. Now, he's yet to run the offense on a regular basis. And you know what? I don't want to go next level cynical here. But when Drew Brees got injured in week two at LA against the Rams, I thought Taysom Hill would be the quarterback. Taysom Hill is the guy that Sean Payton had compared to Steve Young. This is it. Here's your opportunity. Let's see what Taysom Hill can do. But you know what? If Taysom Hill had started those games and gotten those reps and developed, there's no way they could keep Taysom Hill and Drew Brees. They still may not be able to pull it off. But Brees has to decide whether or not he wants to play. And, you know, Brees seems to be sufficiently conscientious that he would go to Sean Payton and say, look, I understand what's going on. I'm 41. You got Taysom Hill. You got Teddy. And you're only going to have me for X number of years. One to four at the most. Here, And Taysom Hill's 29. We think he's a lot younger than that. He's 29. Teddy Bridgewater is younger than Taysom Hill. But you let those guys go. What are you going to do about a quarterback? Now, you can have that confidence slash delusion that you'll find somebody else, and great coaches tend to. But the idea of Taysom Hill getting away, and if I'm a Saints fan, I'd like to think I'm rooting for Taysom Hill to stay. If I watched the Saints-Vikings playoff game, every time Taysom Hill was involved, it was electric. Every time he's on the field, you're on the edge of your seat. And the quote from Paul Allen, I'm not going to get this exactly right. We used it on the show last week. It was the play when Drew Brees fumbles the ball in the fourth quarter as the Saints were driving down to potentially take the lead 24-20, and it looked like they were going to do it. They were on the Minnesota 20. Michael Thomas ran a bad route. Drew Brees called him out later. Didn't say Thomas by name, but that's who he was talking about based upon the film. Right before that play snapped, Paul Allen says something like, I can't believe we're relieved that Drew Brees is back in the game. But that was the feeling. So I would do what I can to keep Taysom Hill. And if that means finding a way to separate from Drew Brees and hope that he retires, I would try to engineer his retirement, just like the Colts tried to do it with Peyton Manning unsuccessfully eight years ago. Remember when Jim Irsay leaked to Rob Lowe that Peyton Manning was going to announce his retirement? They were trying to speak it into existence. And then, if I'm the Patriots, I want Tom Brady to retire. And Brady's the one I haven't discussed I remember when Shefty was banging on this possibility of Brady not coming back to New England during the season. I was like, give it a rest, man. But that was at a time when everything was feeling pretty good with the Patriots. They got worse. From 8-0 and to 4-5, and there's a different vibe with that team now. Now, I think it helps that Josh McDaniel stayed, but there are other factors at play here. And I don't want to, you know, it's kind of unseemly to get into family issues, but I don't think his wife wants to be in Boston. Hasn't that been obvious? And when it comes to pick the next location for the Tom Brady brand, for TB12, for the family, do we really think that she's going to want to go to, you know, somebody, uh, Coach Dungy said that uh, somebody asked him about Tom Brady playing for the Colts, and Dungy said, I think it'd be great. I don't know what his wife's going to think about living in Indianapolis. And that's part of this too. When you think about it, I think the options are pretty limited. I think it's the Chargers or the Dolphins. Right? Chargers or the Dolphins. Unless somebody who currently has a quarterback and is willing to move on from that quarterback in order to plug Tom Brady into a potential championship team. Let's say Jimmy Garoppolo has five interceptions on Sunday. Let's say. Remember that practice where he had five interceptions and five passes? Let's say he does that on Sunday. And all of a sudden, everything turns in one afternoon, in one evening against Garoppolo. Attract him to San Francisco for one year? Possibly. The Saints? Door number four? Remember two years ago, and it would be fitting because Teddy Bridgewater was part of this as well. The Vikings had three free agent quarterbacks. Bridgewater, Bradford, and Keenum, all three gone. Kirk Cousins comes in. Saints. Breeze, Bridgewater, and Taysom Hill. Restricted free agent, but still, contract expiring. Got to make a decision. We'll take Tom Brady. I don't know that that's the right play for the Saints, but that's the kind of thing. A team that is ready to win the Super Bowl right now. I think the one factor we're overlooking here is the possibility of Tom Brady wanting to have more say. He's got 20 years of experience wanting more say in the offense. And Bill Belichick isn't going to give that say to an assistant coach. Noah Vincent, who you got in this weekend's matchup? 
34-24 Chiefs, 24-21 Packers. Vanilla Gorilla, which pass rush is more effective on Sunday, Green Bay or the 49ers? You know, we don't think much of the Green Bay pass rush generally, and then we start watching them play, and Zadarius Smith is pulling up his jersey to show us a message on his undershirt, and he gets two sacks, and Preston Smith gets two sacks, including the sack on third and five that freaked Pete Carroll out and caused him not to go for it on fourth down, contributing to the victory. Here's the thing. Which quarterback is more likely to keep plays alive with his feet? And I watched the Week 12 game between the Packers and the 49ers just yesterday. Aaron Rodgers can run circles around those guys. Aaron Rodgers, and, and think about the contrast. Last week, it's Kirk Cousins, who basically just collapses when the walls close in. Aaron Rodgers has the skills to run away from Nick Bosa and Eric Armstead and DeForest Buckner and D. Ford all day long. And they're going to feel like Rocky and Rocky II chasing the chicken before the fitness montage that got him in shape. And at the end, he pulls the chicken up and Mickey says, that's speed. They could be wiped out by late in the game. I would not have Aaron Rodgers throw from the pocket. Unless the running game is working and I think play action is going to work and he's going to have time to set up while a guy runs down the field and gets open, I would be moving that spot constantly. Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes have a lot in common. And one thing they have in common is the ability to have a moving platform, to have their feet in any position, to have their body, their arm in any position and still deliver the football accurately. And Aaron Rodgers, his football mortality keenly at hand he's thriving in that moment i would move him around all day long he will be gassed when this one's over he's going to be cutting his scotch with gatorade when this one is over if i'm coaching aaron Rodgers, because i'm going to move him and move him and move him all day long Paul Benjamin Fitzsimmons, dose, dose, after seeing Bill Cowher and Jimmy Johnson. Welcome to the Hall of Fame on live television. Do you think they may start airing David Baker knocking on doors live? Baker welcomes player, then commentary, then next player. It couldn't be any worse than the combine television-wise. But see, what they try to do now, they try to hold all of this until the award ceremony that day. Because on and and they they've 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 nudged along the selection committee. You can't have the all-day debate. You got to be done because we got to let these guys know, and then we got to get them to the honors ceremony so they can be unveiled there. They're on a timeline. It's a TV show now. If you could do live to tape, which I think they do, the moments we see the moments of when the guy shows up, and as I said on Sunday, when he showed up at Fox, when David Baker arrives, you're either getting enshrined or whacked. They could do something more with it. It is a great moment. It is a great moment. And I guess it's fitting that the TV guys got their TV moment because when you think of other coaches that may be more deserving of bronze busts like Mike Shanahan and Mike Holmgren who don't have gigs on national TV, I really do think what you do after you get out of football helps you. I think it helped John Madden. It helped Cower. It helped Jimmy Johnson. It helped Dick LeBeau that he became a beloved coach. If Dick LeBeau never becomes an assistant coach, if he just moves on from football after his playing career is over, I don't think he's ever getting in. He got in as a player. It's just the reality of it. Look, I'm down on the Hall of Fame for a variety of reasons. I talked about it this week on PFT Live. I think it was Thursday morning. I spent some time talking about Troy Polamalu's indifference to individual awards because football is a team sport. That really resonated with me. And I'm troubled by the manner in which the Pro Football Hall of Fame bastardized the selection process ignoring the selection committee, cutting them out of it altogether because they wanted this 15-member class all in. They wanted them all to get through. They wanted to jam them all into one class and have the selection committee rubber stamp it. And once the selection committee became aware that they were not going to have the opportunity one person at a time to vote like they have for every other finalist, up or down, yes or no, you have to pass that threshold. I think it's 80%. Once they found out about it and started sending messages back publicly and privately to the Hall of Fame, hey, there's a chance all 15 of these guys aren't getting in. If we don't like one of these guys, we will have no qualms about dumping the whole class. That's when they got cut out of it. 
for the 25-member Blue Ribbon panel, which, look, for the most part, the names on there, I'm fine with, although one or two of the guys I'd never heard of, that's fine, they probably never heard of me, but they're the ones voting on this 15-member Centennial class. And you just wonder how much influence Bill Belichick had over it. Right? You bring together a bunch of people, and then you bring in the most respected coach in the history of the game. I have a feeling that Bill's 15 ended up being the 15. I just don't like what this has become. I don't like this vague process. I don't like the fact that there aren't nearly enough busts to honor the people who should be honored. And ultimately, look, folks, it's a museum, and they want people to go to it. And they like it when we talk about it. They like it when we hype it. Even if we're saying the selection process is flawed, they want the Hall of Fame to be in the public consciousness. But they have big plans for this place. I don't think the plans are ever going to come to fruition. But they're trying to generate as much interest as they can in order to generate as much money out of it. It's a business just like the NFL. It's just a much smaller scale with only one weekend of relevance per year. Although they've managed to conjure a second weekend of relevance in 2020 in connection with the 100th anniversary of the NFL. Not the 100th season, 100th anniversary, which is coming in September of 2020. Dirtbag1327, have you seen the Aaron Hernandez documentary? Thoughts on him asking for a trade and the Patriots helping him rent a safe house? I have seen it. I watched all of it because I noticed that people were talking about it on social media, and I also have access to the predominant search terms that people are using to get their way to PFT. And Aaron Hernandez's name had been on it all week. And we didn't have any Aaron Hernandez stories. There's been no news on Aaron Hernandez. It was the documentary that came out. So I thought I should go watch it. And I did. And I wrote about it earlier today. And I, I don't expect people to agree with my take, but this is my take. And I think it's right, or I wouldn't have said it. It's my honest belief as to what the documentary is and isn't, I just feel like there was this effort, and it wasn't a very subtle effort, to conjure a bunch of different excuses to explain why Aaron Hernandez became a murderer. And there's a fine line between helping us understand how a life goes south and making excuses for the conduct of a human being who chooses to engage in killing and assuming there will be no consequence. I mean, it was the whole kitchen sink. His dad dies during a routine hernia operation and that sets his life in the wrong direction. His mom takes up with the husband of a beloved cousin of Aaron Hernandez's and that screws him up, seeing that all play out in front of his impressionable teenage eyes. Interviews with a high school teammate who claimed he had a homosexual relationship with Aaron Hernandez and how the repressed homosexuality creates fits of rage that somehow contributed to this guy who became a murderer. Leaving Connecticut and then coming back after being drafted by the Patriots and being around a bad element, a bad element he was attracted to and involved with because he got into drug use and that put him in the company of these criminals. So it made him a criminal, or at least a wannabe criminal. All the way up to his choices of lawyers. The idea that the guys who represented him and bungled the closing argument, now they don't come out and say it. See, here's the beauty of it. They don't take the opinion. This, this is where a documentary can be very, very manipulative, persuasive, and powerful. Even when they're not narrating. What they choose to show you, the pieces of the story that they opt to tell, the way they sequence the information, the way they select the information, the only argument that they give any spotlight to from the Odin Lloyd trial, the only tactic of the lawyers that they call into question is the about face that was pulled at the closing arguments where... The lawyer admits that Aaron Hernandez was present at the scene of the killing of Odin Lloyd, and he was traumatized by it, but somebody else killed Odin Lloyd. Now, that conflicted with Bob Kraft's testimony when Aaron Hernandez said to Bob Kraft, I was at a club, I wasn't even anywhere near there. And it also conflicts with the surveillance footage from the system that Aaron Hernandez stupidly put in his own house because he was paranoid that shows him hanging out with the other two guys, one of whom killed Odin Lloyd the day after 
Odin Lord was killed. So if he was traumatized by all this, he's not going to hang out with these guys. He's not going to let them play with his little daughter. He's going to want to get away from him because he's going to think I'm next. I'm the witness they have to rub out. So I guess my point is this. It feels like whether it was intentional or accidental in the crafting of the story, it feels like an effort is being made to find under the guise of articulating reasons to find excuses. The whole CTE thing that gets jammed into it. I remember when Chris Borland was on the screen the first time, the guy who played in the NFL for one year and then retired and the Fainerwaradas tried to make him the poster child for this, this avalanche of players quitting football because the Fainerwaradas want to be Woodward and Bernstein and bring down football and plenty of other journalists who don't like football want to be on the front row clapping for them as they do it. When I saw Chris Borland, I thought, what in the hell is this guy doing in this documentary? He didn't play with Aaron Hernandez. He didn't know Aaron Hernandez. He has nothing to add to this other than to pontificate about the risks of head injuries and why it caused him to quit playing. And Aaron Hernandez didn't quit playing, and maybe his head injuries turned him into a murderer. That's what they want the viewer to conclude. Ryan O'Callaghan who was closeted while he played, who went through horrible trauma while deciding whether to come out of the closet. Talking about the stress of being a gay man playing football. He never played with Aaron Hernandez. He played for the Patriots, but he was gone two years before Hernandez was drafted. But he gives credence to the idea that the stress of being a closeted gay football player can cause you to become angry, can cause you to have fits of rage. It's one of the reasons why I believe the documentary gets into the idea that the prosecution in the Furtado and De Abreu double homicide, the one for which Hernandez was acquitted, the prosecution wanted to make the argument because the motive was very flimsy. And Jose Baez did a great job of defending Hernandez in that case. And that's one of the reasons why I think they made the lawyers look like they didn't do a good job in the Odin Lloyd case, they want the viewer to think, hey, if he just would have had Jose Baez. In fact, they have somebody say that at one point. If he just would have had Jose Baez for the Odin Lloyd case, he would have been acquitted. So therefore, he would have been free and he wouldn't have died. He wouldn't be a murderer at all. But what they wanted to do in that case, the prosecution, was to bolster the motive that Baez was effectively attacking and attacking and attacking by suggesting that Aaron Hernandez was angry all the time because he was a repressed homosexual. It, it just was strange to me. And after I watched it, I just, I, I just, it's like, I know the story and I really didn't learn anything here. All I learned is that prosecution argument that was ultimately aborted and Aaron Hernandez loved Harry Potter books. Now, the most compelling scene was when he's waiting for Robert Kraft to come into the courtroom and testify in the Odin Lloyd case. As I wrote about earlier today, in that moment, when Robert Kraft's name is called, Aaron Hernandez becomes the little boy who knows he's going to be in trouble when dad gets home. And he turns and he looks and he turns back and he turns and he looks. He goes like six times looking back at that door waiting for Mr. Kraft to come through. Scared to death. Different kid. And in that moment, in that moment, you kind of think maybe, maybe they're onto something here. Maybe. But I, I just, look, I, I think that by delving into someone's background, by delving into all of the factors that went wrong in their lives, you could make anyone who was a murderer seem sympathetic. And I, my only rational conclusion is that's exactly what they were trying to do. And if so, mission accomplished. Not me necessarily, but I think others come out of it with a different feeling for Aaron Hernandez. And maybe some thinking, yeah, he could have gotten acquitted. Maybe he didn't do it. Maybe if he had Jose Baez, that mountain of evidence, circumstantial, no murder weapon. Maybe if he had had Jose Baez, he would have been acquitted and he'd still be alive today. Another one from Paul Fitzsimmons. I'm running out of time here. How likely is it that Kevin Stefanski was Cleveland's second choice between him and Robert Sala? Maybe Sala wasn't interested in Monday Morning owners meetings and Shanahan kept saying the right opportunity when talking about Sala as a head coach. Maybe Shanahan made a PowerPoint to keep Sala out of Cleveland. Look, I, I think based upon everything I heard last week about what the Browns were planning to do, I think they went into Saturday's game saying we're going to hire the loser. We're going to hire the guy whose team gets knocked out. 
Now, I don't know that Sala would have taken it, but I think they were going to offer it to the coordinator whose team lost on Saturday because they were determined to make the hire on Sunday, and I was told that Saturday's outcome would not be a huge factor in that timeline. wasn't a huge factor in the timeline, but it was a huge factor in who they picked. Locker room talk. On a scale of 1 to 10, how good of a grade would you give the Aaron Hernandez Netflix special? I don't watch a lot of documentaries, so I really don't know what to compare it to, but because I know the story, and because, as I said earlier... I really didn't learn anything from it. And I feel like there was a either clumsy or deliberate effort to make him look more sympathetic and to blame a lot of different things, including football. I don't know. More than one and less than five. I'll narrow it down to that. Recliner quarterback, which new Cowboys, or how about this? Will new Cowboys head coach Mike McCarthy be allowed to have open competitions for players and playing time under the ginger clapper? It seemed players were playing even when not the best, likely because of their contract. I don't know how much pressure is going to be placed on Mike McCarthy from above, but this is what he signed on for. He wanted to coach again. He's coaching the Cowboys. It's America's team. And he had all those years in Green Bay with no owner at all. Now he's got two very involved owners and he's going to have to deal with it. And he's going to have to find a way to coexist. Locker room talk. Andy Reid, Aaron Rodgers, which guy's football legacy is more in jeopardy this week? I would say, I would say, well, you know, Rodgers has a Super Bowl championship. Rodgers is a Hall of Famer. And Reid is too. But 20 years of football, one and six in the conference championship round, I think Reid's is more on the line. Even though Reid is going to have more chances because he's got Patrick Mahomes, we don't know that Aaron Rodgers and the Packers are going to be back at this level next year. Nobody expected them this year. Maybe a full offseason of studying what Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers are doing will make it easier for teams to slow them down next year. There's a lot of these games where it just felt like the Packers scored some early points and then held on. They didn't feel like a dominant team. They didn't feel like a 13-3 team. I'd say I'd say Reed because Rodgers has a Super Bowl win. The Real Eagle fan, why is there a double standard regarding quarterback play with Trubisky and Mayfield? Browns had better weapons, but Trubisky had similar stats to Baker with less. It appears that everyone is calling to replace Trubisky, but no noise regarding Baker. Mayfield was great as a rookie. And I think there's some noise. I thought that maybe the Browns were looking for a coach that would tell them, uh, maybe we should look elsewhere for a quarterback. I don't know how the Browns organization feels about Mayfield after a horribly failed 2019 season. But I think Freddie Kitchens is the guy who got the blame for 2019. Plus the inability, and this goes to Kitchens ultimately as well, to figure out how best to use Odell Beckham Jr. Because Beckham not getting the football as much as he wanted, it created stress on that whole team. I think both guys are at a crossroads in 2020. And I think Mayfield does maybe deserve a little bit more scrutiny. You know, because Mayfield is one of these guys that holds grudges, there are people in the media who stop short of criticizing him. Because they don't want to have to deal with angry Baker Mayfield. They want to maybe interview him at some point. They don't want him calling them out because he will call them out on Twitter. Kind of like the behavior of a certain politician we know that has people running scared because they don't want to be on the wrong side of a tweet storm. Mayfield will do it. Trubisky won't. Mr. Booz, will the XFL defenders sign PFT Commoner? Hey, look, I think the XFL has done overall a poor job of promoting its product, but these phony tryouts of PFT Commoner and Shadow Chosinko, that's the most authentic buzz they've created, even though it's obvious what they're up to. They have not done a good job of promoting this sport. And I don't know, maybe ESPN and Fox are, while operating as good partners of the NFL, deliberately encouraging the XFL not to rain on the NFL's postseason parade, but the XFL has not done a whole lot of promotion of itself. And here's the thing. I still don't know that anybody cares about spring football because I don't. I'll cover the XFL and I love football, but the example I've given you all in the past, USFL 1983, I was so fired up about it. This is great. I love football, more football. Yes, more football, more football. And then it starts. It's like, why am I watching this football? It's not football season. All right, I got to wrap this up. I'm going to skim through and find uh, maybe a couple more. Outlaw Jamboree, any XFL or CFL rules you'd like to see the NFL adopt? No brainer. The XFL overtime. Two-point conversion shootout from the five-yard line. All 44 guys on the field at each end. Two points if you score, one point if you stop them. You go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I think they're going five times. Let's see what else is going on. Is Luke, this is from Tom Marshall, a red zone out. Is Luke Keekley more, morally obliged to inform the rest of the league if he has retired under medical advice? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, I pointed out the other day that 
because Luke Keekley stopped short of giving us the reason for his inability to play football that we can only speculate it was concussion related. And some people are like, oh, he has no obligation to tell you. And I'm not saying he does. I'm just saying if you choose not to give us the reason when you're in this inherently public life, there's an opportunity and there's a reason and there's a basis for saying it must be concussion related. But he doesn't have to tell us. I don't think there's going to be a press conference where he takes a bunch of questions. All right, last question. And look, I'm sorry I didn't get to all these. I wanted to. Uh, there's some good ones floating around down here, but I, I got some other things I got to do, so I apologize. But the last one is a very important question. Oh, the last one is one that I, I cannot ignore. Paul Zulak, do you prefer early, mid, or late season episodes of Seinfeld? I assume you mean not during a given season. I assume you mean 1, 2, 3, or 4, 5, 6, or 7, 8, 9. I like the middle. I like... Four, five, six, that range. Seven is when it started to maybe realize they were running out of ideas. And the book Seinfeldia is excellent because you really get a sense of the angst that Larry David was dealing with. I mean, he's neurotic as it is. He is George Costanza in many respects. But the idea that they had to come up with 25 of these a year or however many they had to do, it drove him crazy. How are we going to keep coming up with ideas? I can't keep coming up with these ideas. And I think they got to a point where they were having a hard time coming up with ideas. Because I think the last three seasons got a little bit too, a little bit too much. And that finale, that finale was a disappointment. I know what they were trying to do, but it was a disappointment. Four, five, six. And four was, people think season three was the NBC pilot year. Season four was the NBC pilot year. Because season one was very short. Season two was more like a real season. Season three was the season that, that which one culminated in? I think season three is the one that culminated in Kramer going to California. That was season three, I believe. But I think four, four, five, six was the sweet spot for me. And I don't know what my favorite episode was, because I really do like a lot of them. And even the ones I don't like, I still kind of liked. And there aren't many I didn't like. Some of the ones in season nine, yeah. The finale, like I said, yeah. The Kenny Rogers Roaster one, which is one of the later series I, for some reason I loved that one for a long time that one just made me laugh out loud uh, the outing the moment that George realizes what the reporter from NYU is up to oh no oh no that's great I always crack up I always crack up at that all these years later but uh, anyway that's it I like to go out on a high note like Seinfeld but I don't know how high of a high note this is all I know is I'm out of time and I've done this for the first time in several weeks. And I apologize I haven't done it sooner. Now that my travel schedule is done, I'm very happy this weekend. This is the first weekend since Labor Day where I get to stay home the whole weekend. Now, it doesn't last long because next weekend on Sunday, it's time to go to Miami for a full week. But then after that, more weekends at home. And this period of the year from February until late August, early September of waking up on Saturday morning and having a nice little routine, working on the website, getting a little nap, getting in a workout, running some errands, just having a normal life and not have to worry about running out the door with a bag and getting to a plane and having that Sunday that is nonstop. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, constantly, constantly, constantly. It's just nice because during the season, the only normalcy really sets in on Friday night. During the off-season, there's some normal weeknights, normal weekends. It's just kind of nice. It's kind of nice to have a quasi-normal life. And for this weekend, I'm going to enjoy it every year. Conference championship weekend. Yeah, you work the games, you watch the games, but I'd watch the games anyway. But the idea of not having to go anywhere, not having to be anywhere, just being able to be home and enjoy it, I really look forward to that. Enjoy the games. I like the Chiefs. I like the Packers. Either way, I hope both games are exciting. I hope we have a good controversy that drives traffic. And we will talk again next week, PFTPM, Tuesday, Conference Championship Awards. And then we're going to have to reconfigure this whole thing. Because Sims and I have been doing the Picks Mega Podcast. I don't know what we're going to do on Thursdays now. I need to talk to him about that. And maybe we just shelve the whole joint podcast thing until next season. That may be what they do. That may be what we do. Either way, maybe it'll be more occasions like this where I can just sit here with the microphone and answer your questions. We'll have plenty more content, though. As you know, 12 months a year, football never stops, and we're just getting started in the offseason. Thanks for your support, as always, and we will talk very soon. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.